on this episode of AV Week, Google's secret plans, IoT bums out electrical engineering, predictions for your living room in 2025, and vinyl back and profitable. These stories and more on AV Week. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. 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 Is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. Ready. AV, AV Week. Performing scan. Week. Online. This is AV Week. This is AV Week, episode 215. It's the Illuminati, recorded October 2nd, 2015. And welcome to another edition of AV Week. Welcome all. Thank you for joining us today. This is your show for the news and information on the pro-AV and integration world. Again, thanks for joining us. I'm your host, George Tucker, and I swear by next week I will have proof of life that Tim is back. We have a lot of stories to cover today, so let me introduce our panelists on what's going on. First off, it is the first Friday of the month, so of course, Andrea Medraos, she is editor at Tech Home Builder. Welcome again. Thank you for having me. All right. And a returning favorite, Michael Braithwaite, he is Senior VP at Clear One. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having us. Good to see you. And also, Paul Zeely from Harmon. How are you, sir? Good. How are you? All right. Again. Again. <laughs> All right, so let's start off with one of our first articles today. This is from our friends at EE Times, and it's got the provocative title of Who's Dumber, You or Your Home? All right, so the premise of this from the EE Times people, who are basically on the sort of manufacturing and development side, are basically saying that the IoT and those connected mesh networky things now, if you thought they were going to save us, they're not. That there's lots of problems with how... Uh, the consumer does not think they're reliable, et cetera, et cetera. Andrea, I'm going to start off with you. This is right in your wheelhouse with things. Do you find that the builders and their clients still don't trust this, or are they looking forward to these things? Does, does this article have it right? I felt like the ending of this article had it right, and it spoke to me as in a lot of the problems I hear from the builders, the network, the network, the network, the network and professionally installed systems. I think builders have been burned so many times on the systems that homeowners are trying to install, and it just spoke to me as to why professionally installed systems are so important. And I believe more builders are going toward that now. We've seen that in the luxury realm for a long time, but I'm seeing more and more more high-volume builders going toward at least offering a network, if not wireless as standard, and even more technology as standard these days. Hmm. Uh, Michael, one of the article's quotes here is, quote, obstructing growth in consumer adoption, sorry, and that along with a steady drop in demand may be challenging as holiday season and home automation companies see less sales. Um, do you think that there's a reality here that they're, they're really stating, or are, are they just sort of doom and gloom because they weren't selling as many little chips as they thought they would. Well, it's always interesting because um, this uh, uh, this part of the market has been here a long time now. It's had several names and <laughs> come along in, in different parts. But, you know, what's interesting is uh, in that same uh, article where they talk about, um, you know, the number one returned item at Best Buy, for example, uh, being a Wi-Fi router, um, that that's been uh, I, I heard that literally 15 years ago. The, yeah. the exact same thing, and so here we are, 15 years later, and the consumer still can't set up their Wi-Fi uh, 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 router and, and and so forth. And uh, it gets to the point of um, there are people who like certain aspects of what they uh, the, this whole uh, automation brings in or Internet of Things brings in, such as, uh, you know, I want to see who's at my front door or I want to 
you know, talk to somebody who's at the front door, take a picture of somebody dropping a package at the front door. And they always will do one or two things. Uh, a lot of it is, uh, is frankly, security-based. Uh, um, and then they kind of do uh, forget about it or, or uh, get past that. And the frustration from the consumer side uh, is, I mean, it is, it is felt there. Um, if they have a professional integrator, um, generally speaking, you know, we, if if the data would show uh, that the customer doesn't have the, the same issues, mostly because somebody is there and somebody is guiding them and somebody somebody's there to call as opposed to I don't know what to do. So I think the article is pretty accurate um, it, with the way people feel about it and you know the current state. Well, let me ask you this then, because they said that the number one return is the is the wireless router or something akin to that, and they go on to explain how just to set up an outdoor security camera may need an access point, and that's all too complicated. Uh, but then we have the reviews of the the Google Hub or the One Hub, I think it was called, and they hated it and said it was complex, even though it was one button push. Uh, is is there a place where we can't be too simple, or are we not simple enough in this still? Well, I mean, um, it's a funny two-edged sword there. Uh, people say they want it simple, um, and I want one button, but then, oh, I also need it to do these two or three things that I can't do without one button. So it, it quickly turns from I need it simple to, well, but I want it to do what I want it to do, mm -hmm. which is different than what you want it to do or what she wants it to do or, you know. And so um, really what they're saying when they say they want it simple, they're saying I want it to work and I want it to uh, work repeatedly every time. That's really what they're talking about, simple. And so when you talk about the hub, um, it goes the other way of, hey, we've hidden all of the things that, um, you know, to make it simple for you. We've hidden all the things that you would have needed to make this uh, work with your application. And that's where an experienced user gets frustrated. So, you know, it's a play on words. The simplicity is not necessarily that it only took one button. The simplicity is that when I plugged it in, I auto-discovered it from my iPhone, and I set it up. That's kind of the, the simplicity part. Uh, Paul, from a, from a manufacturer's perspective on this as well, is there really too much complaining from these guys at EE that maybe we just need to make boxes that do it all? Or to Michael's point, do we need to have maybe some more external controls that give a comfort level <laughs> to the end user? Well, it, it, unfortunately, the answer is somewhere in between, as he said. Um, you know, base functionality with customizability for the people who who want to be sophisticated. It's uh, it's not just in the home world. It's in everything else. I um, I have to fight with my tech support and, and various engineering people if I want advanced features in our products because they'll say, oh no, somebody can, a, an integrator can get in trouble if they don't understand that. And, you know, my reply is rather than build stupider devices, maybe we um, need to build smarter integrators, but it doesn't necessarily extend down to being able to build a, uh, a smarter general public. I'm, I'm not that optimistic. Um, the, the real issue that, that, that comes in here, I think, is that there is no all-in-one kind of turnkey integration, and, and this is an integration. So, so somebody either has to have some chops to be able to do integration or, or, or hire somebody to do it. So if it comes in with a builder or something else. But um, I like to think that for the most part, um, wireless has gotten to the point that they can plug it in um, and uh, you get a wireless router with your cable internet and it just kind of shows up and hopefully the guy sets up an SSID for you and gives you a password and you can get that going. Um, and there is the, I've turned it off on mine, but I have the one button join mm -hmm. wireless thing on, on my wireless router. But, um, you know, the goal with Google buying Nest and putting Fire is ultimately that um, it's going to have to be a single 
vendor environment unless if some level of standards come up. And the communication standards isn't enough because it's control management kind of um, the, the mecca will be, hey, you buy an all-Apple house or you buy an all-Google house and you've got this one magic box on here and you plug something in, it sends out a broadcast, I, I come up with the device and it um, goes, downloads the drivers for that device, sets it up and presents me with a, a home web page that says, what would you like to do with this new device? And walks you through something very simple. Um, that's going to be a single manufacturer solution and you know Google doesn't make lighting control yet hmm. and and uh, very similarly to this if they make lighting controls they're likely to come out with a smart light bulb which will still mean that I'm gonna have to go turn on the light switch and because I'm gonna have two separate control interfaces because because my smart light bulb will only work when the light switch is on and and at any given time as I walk through a room I will habitually turn off the light switch and disable my smart bulb until uh, I go get up turn on the light switch and get put my light smart bulb back on and and that's where all of this integration stuff falls as soon as you move it into the switch and have a switch that has both a switch on it and a control you've you've brought in an electrician hmm. and and um, well you know, let me let me ask this people for can't a get moment. their home stereos right <laughs> it's true, and they've true. been around for 70 years. Well, let me ask this question because, Andrea, we have the issue with um, do-it-yourself or with an integrator. Mm -hmm. Is there a happy medium in between in which the clients want to be able to buy it themselves or at least have it installed and be able to tweak levels of it? Or is it really a safety factor and a trust factor to have someone do it for them? I, I think it runs the gamut depending on what type of builder you're talking to. I think a lot of high volume builders are adding in professionally installed systems that you can definitely add on to as the consumer. But as the high volume builders get into this realm, a lot of them are just kind of dipping into it now. So it's kind of tough to tell if those systems are going to work yet. I mean, we're talking the past couple years, these people are starting to do this. The other issue is I think the demand by the consumer is I want a complex system, but I really don't want to think about it myself. I want it to do all this stuff, but I don't want to think about the stuff that it's doing. I want you to think about the stuff that it's doing. But then the problem becomes when you're talking high volume is price. So what we've seen recently is a lot of these big high volume builders, the well-known names, they're starting to at least put in wireless as standard. They're installing a strong wireless connection as standard and putting it into the home price. So again, that consumer doesn't have to think about it, but then they're pleasantly surprised when they can hook all of these different devices to their network and they don't have to worry about it. So it's kind of a marketing technique that they've taken on at this point. Interesting. Uh, Michael, I want to throw something at you that Paul was, was talking about where he said he was fighting with some of the engineering to put features in that may or may not cause problems. Uh, based on what Andrea said, do you think there's a logic here of making certain levels locked and you have to have a certain qualification to get there? Or is that really causing more trouble than it's worth uh, in the long run, say social media of saying, I'm an engineer, I'm knowledgeable enough, yet they won't let me do it? Yeah, I mean, it's a fine line that uh, they walk. Uh, in the past, uh, you may recall uh, where you had a display uh, or a projector where there were two remotes, right? You had a user remote, and the user remote had the baseline functions, the on-off, the input selection, and things like that, volume up, down, mute. But then you had a service remote. The service remote had very advanced things that uh, you might be doing when you provision or commission a system. Um, and in the, you know, this this may date how long I've been doing video, but when you would converge, you know, and, and you, you would do a lot of things with the service remote. And um, if you look at today's model, um, you get the baseline remote with the router. Uh, or you get the baseline remote with the Chromecast or whatever the small device that you're buying, the IoT device that you're buying, what you don't always get is the service remote. 
And so um, that's where people then, uh, that's the angst with the hub or with products like that is, okay, an advanced user or somebody who's doing work uh, integrating for someone else, um, they want the, the ability. And frankly speaking, the only thing that you get now is, oh, here's an API. So here's a document that describes some commands and then here's your baseline, uh, you know, you know, remote. So if you're not a coder, which most of the consumers, most of her audience uh, is, is, are people who are consuming the products, um, then you know that's all they that's all they they get, and that's where an advanced user struggles a little bit. Um, Apple's done a great uh, job with this. Um, they basically take all of the service remote things away. Uh, and then hide them, and yes, if you uh, are very good at navigating Apple's uh, development sites or a developer yourself, you can get to them. Well, let me ask this now. Let's move on to the next story because we're actually covering this. Uh, you said Apple's doing a great job of it. Uh, Google's close on the heels, and from our friends at Engadget, Google's secret strategy for controlling your home. All right, so they've suddenly discovered that infrastructure, as the word goes, uh, Ms. Robinson, <laughs> is one word. It's infrastructure. And, Paul, you, you touched on this as well, that um, that's what you need. And if it's going to make it work, it's a single person or a single um, topology. But here's my question about that. They're saying that one of their little tricks up their sleeve, it's obvious, not so obvious, is to simplify the remote to steal them away from that universal remote, i.e., some of the stuff we put in. Paul, do you think that they have a right tact, or are they going to really just clutter themselves up without an ability to get out of that clutter into a single infrastructure? Well, Google will put the complex stuff on the back end in a, in a web browser or, or an app. What, what you really get to and, and what seems to be missing in, in the home control world is that single app. Um, I don't, you know, I don't want to open up a different app to run my lights and a different app to run my stereo. And and this kind of gateway that that brings in the touch panel experience or the single app experience that can pull in people things um, is really good because you can present single or complex um, user interfaces. And this is very common in the IT world when you're installing software. Very often, the first thing will say, "Do you want the simple setup or do you want the advanced setup?" The you know the question is, "Do you want me to just take care of this and set it up the normal way, or do you want to go through and make every specification?" You can do the same thing within your um, setup pages in the back, and um, the big advantage of having the hub means I now have a single bookmark that gets to all of these things. So, so I can come into the one hub, and I don't have to remember what the IP address of, of the light bulb is. I come into one place, and, and it tells me what light bulbs, and when I plugged it in, I gave it a name. So I look for the living room light bulb, and I can come in and do it. And, and then I've got a very simple remote control that I may have programmed what the buttons are. And uh, if everything is together, I might just have my Barry White button. I come home, lights dim, Barry White comes on the stereo, Base is pumped up, and um, and the wine fridge goes down 15 degrees. Everything's perfect. Isn't that the, um, uh, what is the Rock Hudson movie, uh, Pillow Talk? Does yeah. anyone ever remember that one? He had the, yeah. the very first time I saw a uh, automation system hit the switch and the lights go down, the record player went on, that whole yeah, thing. That, that is the, the end game when I finish my home automation. <laughs> that's, that's the end state. Well, let me, Michael, do we think that Google has the infrastructure to do this? Uh, are they being stealthy or... Is somebody else going to take them over, say, some other little upstart that we don't know, or maybe even Windows, uh, Microsoft, who seems to still have something up their sleeve, but it never quite makes it out? Well, um, I would say that uh, you're going to see all, all the above. So Google is going to use the data, and unfortunately, you, you are going to provide it. Because when you go to click on uh, accept these terms that you didn't read, in the EULA, uh, then in those terms that you didn't read, it said, I'm going to use this 
the analytics, I'm going to use the data that you're providing, and I'm going to use them in these services. Um, this is similar to uh, the term that I, I had uh, uh, came up with previously to, to call some of this was a virtual coffee table. Um, and uh, if you've been in the automation uh, business long enough, you may know that at this that there was something that was called the coffee table problem or coffee table effect. And what that was is on my coffee table, I had 12 different remotes. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so I had all these remotes. I had one remote for the TV, one remote for the VCR, one more, you know, whatever. And that's, that was the coffee table effect. And then, of course, companies like AMX and Crestron and others came out with a very simple, elegant way to... Okay, I have this one touch panel, and I have all the commands that I want on that one device. Well, this is the virtual coffee table effect because I have, yes, I have uh, uh, a iPad or, or whatever uh, controlling this or an Android pad controlling this, but as he mentioned, I have all these different apps. So uh, it's the same thing. It's Instead uh -huh. of uh, physical remote controls, I have different applications that I'm going in and out of. And it's really the problem he just described, which is, okay, so now that I have all of the Internet of Things and I have all of these devices, um, I still need a way to intelligently... Uh, orchestrate them like how a touch panel did with the physical remotes. Uh, Andrea, so we're talking about the 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 EULA and that this is sort of um, something that can be very invasive. Although uh, we're saying that maybe you can do from the tech side or replace certain things, and there's a, an advantage to it. But let me ask you about this because the EULA, as Michael mentioned, many of us many of us don't read, and some of us don't understand how deep it. <laughs> Some of us don't uh, don't always read the EULA, uh, but Tim Cook was on WNYC. That's a public radio station here in New York City, uh, and he talked about the fact that wanting to help you choose a record that you're listening to on iTunes or streaming is one thing, but then finding out what you're reading in the newsreader and suggesting things from there, because who knows what you're researching and for why would be a little bit too much. And he said something to the kind that even in your home, yes, maybe you need to know what the temperature cycle is, but after that, do I really need to know your patterns? That seems to be a, a bit too far. Do you find that this is something of a concern in, in your realm? Uh, I don't, I mean, most builders who are marketing to millennials are introducing Nest thermostats. And that would be monitoring your patterns and your usage. And the millennials really don't seem to mind. I think that generation is so used to this data being collected that I don't really think it's striking them. <laughs> like maybe it would have 15 years ago, even a decade ago. Um, I just think my generation as a whole is so used to it. The shock factor is gone from this data collection. I just don't think it's as shocking anymore. And if it's going to make their lives easier, I think they're all for it. And I'm going to ask you one more then about this. The, the, one of the main parts of this article was that Google can mm -hmm. get you with saying, hey, don't buy the $350 box from, they, they mentioned Sonos here, but someone, mm -hmm. there's a $35 part that will eventually, five years down the road, incorporate into something else for you, but we're going to hook you with that. Do you think this piecemeal bits and parts that they attach themselves is an advantage? Is that sort of a nice friendly entry level and they're not looking at the bigger picture or does it not really matter? They'll go for what they want. Uh, I think I'm going to align myself with the rest of the panelists here today. There's an ease of use factor here and everything does need to be integrated together because whether it's in a millennial, baby boomer, no matter what, they don't want a million apps on their mobile device trying to control their home. I think the biggest thing for people is that ease of use. Um, just like they didn't want 50 remotes, not that it would be 50, but I guess these days with how much we can control, it could be 50 remotes, but I definitely don't want 50 apps uh, to try to control my lights and then maybe my security system is something else. I think we're looking for that platform that can easily control everything. Hmm. Back to what Paul was saying, that somebody's got to win this war, and it's going to be won. Mm -hmm. yeah. What is the claim? Uh, all restaurants are Wendy's or something of that nature? <laughs> I forget what that, Demolition Man, that was the movie, all the, the restaurant Awful wars. Fun. Huh? 
They were all Taco Bell. Taco Bells. I always get it wrong. I don't know why that is. Uh, all right, well, let's move on. Uh, something a little bit futurist as we move forward with that kind of thing. From our friends at CE Pro, we have Michael Rogers, seven predictions for high-tech living room. This is something he's going to be giving a speech at at Cedia coming up very shortly. Uh, I want to ask you guys, let's, let's talk about this. He goes through a number of ideas, uh, two of which really got me. Um, the a la carte streaming and the floor-to-ceiling TVs. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to say that I don't know if the TV floor-to-ceiling is something I'd actually want. Uh, maybe that's just me, but Paul, let's start with you. Your thoughts on what his predictions are. Do you think they're 10 years out, or do you think we got them now? I think a lot of them are, are there now. And the one that really grabbed me is the family homepage, because ultimately that's everything that we've been talking about. Mm. So, so... The idea that I've got some centralized device, and when my TV turns on, just like when I go to a hotel, it always goes to the you-can-watch-this-pay-per-view um, channel, and then I have to move to something else. It, it, it comes up to the homepage for what do you want to do, and, and, and brings you through the simple navigation to watch TV, do something, um, it could easily buy what remote you're using, identify which is you. So if you click favorites, it clicks your favorites because I'm using um, you're using my phone and the, the favorites are in it. Um, and then becoming kind of the bulletin board in the kitchen of, of the future where lists get posted, messages get posted, anything else. Um, you know, you, you see your voicemail. Uh, that is all doable now, and I really see that in the future. Um, Floor-to-ceiling TV with OLEDs is possible because you also have the possibility of you don't have to use all of the screen. So if it's at something painted and it matches your wall color and you want it in 50-inch mode and with a picture of your grandmother hanging above it and uh, then switch it over to ultra-family movie night, um, you know, that, that's a possibility. I was at a uh, store looking at um, TVs yesterday, and some of them are getting close. You know, at a regular retail, you know, big box store, they're, they've got 100-inch TV sets. Um, you know, you put a portrait, you, you've got floor-to-ceiling at that point, at least in some of the rooms in my house. Yeah, I... Let me get let me little Google trouble. Um, yeah. You know, I see that. I guess just the big, big TV is some city dwellers that get smaller and smaller. It just seems yeah. untenable to me. But uh, Michael, I'm going to put you in the hot seat here. Uh, two of the two of the points here: virtual virtual reality uh, and telepresence. This is right in your hot seat here. Um, do you think that there is going to be more of that, or are these just, um, as my uh, kid sister would say, obs? <laughs> well, absolutely. So. Um, the virtual reality and even augmented reality uh, portions of that is you are going to see that, especially in certain applications. Um, uh, you know, if you want to think of uh, the gaming space, uh, for example, um, that is, and and think of what's happening on uh, both on the Sony and the Microsoft platforms um, from a from a point of view of uh, physical activity and, and virtual uh, reality as far as like uh, coming in. It kind of plays in with what you guys were just mentioning. If I have immersive uh, screen presence where I, uh, if they're like OLEDs that are on every wall and, and I can put you in to a position where it's a very immersive experience from uh, many aspects, uh, you are already starting to see some of that. Um, from a telepresence point of view, the interesting thing there is um, um, the environment itself both in the fact of yes, you're doing these uh, video calls and video conferencing calls, and and uh, but the fact is, uh, you can almost tie those two together. In other words, uh, you might be home and you might be on a uh, a, a call or a video call uh, a session going on, but your background might be the office or your background might be something totally different, or you might be totally different. So in other words, you might be an avatar. Uh, that's uh, in this session uh, going. Uh, but the, the thing that's interesting is you might be sitting in your study or your living room, but you're, it looks like you're in a different location, and that's part of what you see on the telepresence side as well. 
it's very interesting because wasn't there a period of time when Second Life was very popular and they were actually doing interviews with Fortune 100 companies in those worlds? And people people were selling things in there. You could buy real estate in there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I, Lockheed Martin had a Second Life um, pavilion, uh, which which completely freaked me out at the mouth breathers they had running it. It was just, I could not believe that the customers that Lockheed Martin was after were really going to be inhabiting Second Life and coming to buy their, you know, uh, stealth fighters and, and billion dollar um, IT service contracts via Second Life. It's an interesting premise because maybe that was people who didn't want to be known and they were doing it sort of in a, oh, in a yeah. way that nobody would trace. Or so we have a dark web second life for all, <laughs> yeah, all of the countries we don't necessarily want to be uh, that. Yeah. Well, let's say second life, as we all know, had a dark side. And <clears throat> Moving on. Uh, Andrea, one of the ones that I want to ask you about is wearable second screen. They, they, they think this is going to be a big thing that everybody wants to connect. Are you really seeing that, or I don't know? It kind of got I, me in between here. I feel like I'm getting off the wearables train. <laughs> Out of all the things that I've seen on that list of what's going to happen in the future, that was the one I was least interested in uh, right now. But I do think the telepresence will be huge. I think maybe in some luxury multifamily complexes, that could be great for aging in place. Um, that could be something that could be used for... I think the floor-to-ceiling screens would be great for gaming, but they also kind of talked about millennials shopping with their friends but not really going to the store. I don't know if I really think that would be something it would be used for, but I think there are a lot of uses um, that would be good in the building realm for that. Also, we talked about the kitchen. We've done a lot about kitchens of the future. I think screens in the kitchen, like he talked about, are definitely going to be more popular probably in the next five years in some of these luxury homes. I think a lot of these things are going to come to fruition sooner than we think. Well, let me ask you this, then, though. I didn't see in this prediction any George Jetson moments. Mm -hmm. are, we just are we just jaded, or is the future is now, as I say, or am I missing something? Well, I think the future is robots, personally, only because I just <laughs> love them. But... <laughs> No, I thought it was something that's definitely attainable. A lot of the things he talked about are attainable in the next 10 years for us. And I'm excited to meet him at CDO when I go there in a week and a half. Interesting. All right, well, let's move on to another one, another I, futurist story. Oh, can I make pawned. one quick comment? And, and I think it all really ties back to the possibility of floor ceiling TV or as... Uh, as you really said, want this, kind, you? Of, kind of everywhere. No, but, <laughs> but when you start to think about second screen, and I absolutely have never been on the wearables um, train, but um, the combination of the streaming on demand and, and the place pixels and information anywhere you want. Um, so, so the concept of the second screen and content coming through combined with this HSN on steroids the possibility of I have a big wall space and something's on TV and I point at it and say, what, what's that blouse Andrea's wearing? And it pops up outside of the screen because I've got pixel space everywhere, second, third, fourth screen. I can, I can consume media just by spawning other windows within that great big pixel space that I have to shop, communicate, look up, and you're getting back to that hypercard multimedia where, where you're addressing. And the reason, the reason I was shopping for TVs last night is my true belief in 4K is I need a 4K desktop because I need that many pixels for what I do for a living. I need to, I have three and four spreadsheets and, and documents and various things open. I love the idea of a huge pixel space that I can, you know, I'm one step from that crazy guy with pictures and string running all over his, his house, um, and, and this would allow me to be that guy and then hit a button and hide it when people came over. I just think the second screen for the regular consumer might be a little much right now. 
But but it wouldn't necessarily be. They're already trying with second screen where you say log on and Twitter along with it and various other mm -hmm. things. The idea of that being built into the broadcast and and rather than being overlay onto that screen, popping into some more pixel space, so I've still got my 100 inches of image and then something else can be as big as I need to shop, look up, comment, whatever social things I'm doing. And, and that, falls, that falls in with the, the telepresence, um, mm -hmm. you know, families sitting together. Years ago, I did a project for Men's Warehouse, um, which was run by a bunch of old guys who grew up together, and they still had their office in Texas, and they still had their, and they had their headquarters in California. And we set up a point-to-point -point video conference that was up 24 to 7 in their two executive living rooms. So their offices all had this big plush pit where they could hang out, their offices around, and the two living rooms were stuck together so they could just come down, sit on the couch, and hang out and talk to each other. And, and that experience of, of the virtual presence, telepresence, disconnected, connected experience it could be very compelling to people because I could sit there and watch TV with my kids on the East Coast you know, we're watching the same thing. I see them. We're talking back and forth, whatever else, virtually away be, without it having to put something in a little pip down at the bottom of this. So, so having that palette of, of a lot of pixels could really shape the way a lot of, a lot of this communication happens. Interesting. Uh, I, it makes me, uh, reminds me of, uh, I once coined a phrase for the uh, site TV predictions, uh, Swanee. And Swanee says is a site and a, uh, and a Twitter feed, and he railed for years that mobile would never do it because small screens are not what anyone wants, and I told him that he had an inverse Swanee ratio. Every mm -hmm. time he mentioned it, then double the number of people joined on to do it. So maybe I'm having the same effect right. here with the wearables. Um, all right, well, let's, let's turn it into something a little bit more futuristic. Uh, and it's one that intrigued me, and especially you, Paul, I wanted to hear about. Yeah. Electricity from the air. This is from our friends at BBC News. Drayson's big idea. This is a gentleman who says he can charge and create energy from the ambient RF around us. And this is a godsend for everything. There's two questions that they're asking on this. One, is it really doable, or are we talking a, uh, a perpetual motion machine? Uh, and will those who generate RF start to say, hey, you're making money from us. We want part of that. Paul, do you? Th let me go to you, Paul. Do you think this technology is actually viable? And what about the sort of fee-based? It, 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 it is viable. Um, it exists today in some extent. If you go to an, if you use an RFID tag, that's powering off of the signal that is um, being being put out by the reader. So it's got a little antenna in there, and it picks up enough juice to be able to to send it back. And, and there are small devices that do this. Um, as power requirements drop and you have things like OLED screens and uh, very low power processors, it, it's definitely possible. Um, especially in some place like New York City where if you've ever stuck a spectrum analyzer um, in New York City to try to Indeed. find where you can put your wireless mic, <laughs> plenty of free power. No, or and, just uh, even doing Wi-Fi itself. Yeah, and what are the emitters going to say? Um, you're, 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 you know, taking my power I already put out. You then say, well, you trust your your frequencies are trespassing on my living room. Um, it's it's going to be a combination of very low power devices, um, and and really right now. Um, certain things just scream. You probably notice on your phone. I noticed because I was in Atlanta this week and I had um, maps up on my phone. And when I've got active maps up on my phone tracking where I am, my battery life is is less than half because it's, it's running the GPS, it's keeping the screen on, all of these other things. Um, but But this is, you know, perhaps perfect for some of these you know, small control interfaces. So if I want a, you know, the the worst part of having a phone or a wireless touch panel is um, is uh, the fact that it runs out of batteries at the worst time, and then I'm tied to a to a wall ward. If I can harvest energy all the time, uh, then 
then that could be really good. And it's not a new idea. I mean, this is the way Tesla wanted to do it. It's, you know, I was about to mention Tesla and the uh, sort of, what did he call it, free power, infinite power? Yeah. Something yeah, similar. Of, course, of course, nobody realized that it was going to bake the insides of everybody. Um, <laughs> Details. Uh, Details. To, to, to do it. But, I mean, quite frankly, every device, you know, practically every device in the world, this is how a transformer works. Those two, those two wires aren't connected in a transformer. They're very close, but that's, that's magnetic waves going between those wires and pushing electrons along. Well, let me ask, uh, Michael, what about the, even though Paul said, yes, say, your RF is impinging on my living room, peanut butter, chocolate, uh, but what about the fee base saying, I'm generating those things, and you're making a massive revenue off of it, if, if we're. As a manufacturer, you make a device, you're going to utilize this technology. Where's the fear here that you, we could get into a deep hole and, the, and the, some law says, yep, you got to find a way to identify that and reimburse. Well, I mean, uh, unfortunately, regulations is actually what stifles uh, the innovation in this and, and any industry. So I definitely hope that uh, we don't go down uh, that type of route. Uh, not to mention that physics is physics. It's going to be very hard for you to stop or, or uh, try to uh, identify that. But I will say, to expand on what Paul was uh, describing, is um, I believe you'll see all of our displays and all, all of our devices will be using this. So, for example, you have your new 50-inch uh, OLED uh, poster, would be the better, more appropriate way to, to uh, position it. Um, basically, on that new display device, there would be no power connection. And so the only thing in that display, really, is a big battery. And so the, the battery that's in there is constantly being trickle-charged all the time. Um, there are already some patents and, and different uh, products that uh, are you see from... Uh, they start with the small mobile devices like Paul, what Paul was talking about a lot, and you already see them on Samsung devices and things like that. But um, once you have a very uh, low energy device and you have a display device that, that's capable at, at low wattage and, and doing it, basically you're using um, the, the RF to constantly trickle charge these batteries. And, and so in, the, in effect, it's not going to last forever because uh, the battery eventually wore out or, or, or go for it, but it's pretty close. It, it, it's, um, it's, you know, it, it's as close as, as you'll get. And I, and I would, I mean, my uh, suggestion would be that you will see a lot of this in our field. Andrea, I'll throw this to you as well. Uh, the big advantage is no wires. Uh, big advantage mm -hmm. is easy stuff. Uh, boon or bust, in your opinion? I think if we can make it work, this would be an enormous uh, plus in the smart home, especially in the homes that are trying to be so cutting edge now with energy efficiency, not to mention the energy efficiency and the clean look. I mean, it's two big pluses in the smart home. So, I mean, I think if we can make this work, I think it would be a huge positive for builders. Cool. The, I mean, the only thing is uh, the states will start pushing for you to have to be an electrician to hang a mm -hmm. poster. <laughs> true, true. There you go. Uh, those local local codes. Uh, <laughs> let's go a bit about old school, though. We've been talking a lot about the future, and something that caught my eye, uh, actually, to name drop a little bit on Jeremy Burkhart's fa Facebook page, he was talking about, from Business Insider of all places, vinyl sales generate more revenue than free Spotify, YouTube, and Vivo combined. I'll repeat that. Vinyl sales generate more revenue. Who would have thought? Welcome to 1975, I think is the answer there. Um, do any of you guys have vinyl? Do you use it? Let's start with, with, with you, Michael. Do you think that this revenue model is actually a true one? Are we seeing a change to something that the audiophiles would always say, thank God we're finally paying attention to the sound? Or is there something else at play here? Well, I mean, there's a, it, there's a bit of nostalgia uh, uh, to it as well. Um, you know, when you talk about, um, at one time, a, uh, a record release 
was actually a big deal, kind of like a movie release. It's, there was a time where, hey, this new album, this new Stones album is coming out, and and uh, you had a tangible thing because you were you're going through the the albums, and it had an album cover, and it had it in notes, and it had uh, and you're looking at things, and um, you you put it down. Now, if you want to talk about quality, um, this is where a lot of people will. Uh, get off the bus with me because I, I would call a lot of people love the quality of course of uh, vinyl and audio files and all that I would um, at uh, the rate of being uh, uh, criticized a little bit here I would say the pre-distortion that people get used to um, and and enjoy or like um, which can be synthetically um, created as well uh, but but yes, yeah, so uh, I think uh, you know when you get to the point of I'm buying a song for 99 cents or downloading a song, which is not an album, it's not a complete set of work, but I'm buying a song. You lose the tangibility of it, you lose the 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 nuance of it, and uh, the value doesn't seem to be there. So on the uh, you know what this article talks about is how uh, people enjoy the tangible aspects of it, and of course the audio. Uh, and again, I'm sorry, but the pre-distorted aspects of it that people tend to enjoy. Yeah, I was once described to me by an audio engineer as the second, second order harmonic distortion, which we find warm, and that's what we're looking for. And working uh, at a recording studio in New York City, they had tons of outboard gear to add it to digital <laughs> recording. So yes, it, it is there. And I'm wondering if you would even tell the difference other than the physical experience of doing it. Uh, Andrea, I'm going to turn this over to you a little bit. You have described yourself as part of the millennial. You uh, speak for that in many ways. Uh, records, do you own them? Do you do it? Or do you see this as a trend amongst your peers? I don't own any, but I've definitely seen it as a trend amongst my peers. So personally, I don't see the appeal, but I definitely do see it as a trend among the millennials. So I don't know if we might be installing some players in the smart home and having it somehow connected into the system. I'm not sure, but definitely a good majority of my friends own them. Interesting. Paul, I'll throw this to you. Uh, uh, I do have vinyl, but it's, <laughs> but it's, but it's original, <laughs> um, not retro. I, I will point out that there is a huge resurgence in people uh, buying penny-farthing bicycles. There's, you know... There, there's also always a rep, uh, a retro. And this uh, is hold on a second. penny farthing. I'm sorry, I don't even know. Penny what that farthing is. bicycles. Think of your 1800s, the big front wheel, the little uh, small one. Yes, penny okay. farthing. Uh, those are very common. Handlebar mustaches. I mean, steampunks are doing it. Yeah, huh? it, it, it's uh, my children are millennials, and um, there is there is vinyl among them, and uh, it is not for their audiophile quality. My vinyl is because I tend to be um, a little more into things that, that never actually got released on CD, <laughs> even in many times, although it's amazing that all the stuff that skipped CD is available on YouTube. So, so if you like 1920s you know, uh, blues records, people are taking, and because today if you buy a turntable, you can't buy a turntable that even the professional DJ turntables have a USB output. Right. Um, so people are taking the the um, vinyl and putting it onto their digital devices when, when they want to use it. But the point of this is making not the the total amount of money spent, it's the amount of money the that trickled back to the record companies and artists and maybe just to the record companies. So maybe the record companies that are being cut out of the profit stream here because the artists now have a, a potential to be able to cut deals directly with these streaming companies without the the major label pieces and and moving out. And you know, a lot of it really comes down to it's very difficult to clean your pot on a download. <laughs> See, the old yeah, people laughed at that. that. The that. old people laughed at that. <laughs> I, the business model is very interesting in that, uh, you know, it reminds me of the days when, uh, say, the kids like Minor Threat and the DC sound in the yeah. 80s uh, pressed their own records. Their quality yeah. was iffy, but, you know, we also got the flexi records in the back of the designs yeah. in the day. Um, it's an interesting proposition that a medium is making money despite its technological um, irrelevance, as it were. 
Yeah. Uh, I think it's very interesting, and it could be something we look at. I mean, that's I why I want it, knobs on things. I think a lot of it speaks to the democratization. So, so vinyl is there as a trend that the record companies are able to do to, and, and quite frankly, they may be, you know, put on my conspiracy theory tinfoil hat. You know, the record companies could potentially be pushing vinyl as a way for them to actually control and have a product. And, you know, this is hip and retro and everything else because they've lost control of, of, of distribution of their product. As my, my eight and ten-year-old who have recently discovered would say, it's all the Illuminati. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to something that I'm intrigued by, and I'm actually going to ask some questions here that I don't really know the answers to. Uh, from our friends at Commercial Integrator, get rid of long-distance 4K HDMI challenge once and for all. They're claiming here with the BTX technologies that they can solve the short-run issue of 4K. Okay. Uh, Michael, I'm going to turn this to you a little bit. What's going on here, and do you think this is really viable, or are we going to get to Cedia and someone goes, let's test that, and we have like an Infocom three years ago that I'm going, ooh, didn't quite work the way I thought. Well, I think it's going to work uh, the way that people would expect. Um, I think what they may be surprised about for some uh, for this kind of uh, uh uh, technology is the cost involved. Um, you know, so once you uh, start looking at this, um, there are lots of different technologies that uh, obviously will will help for this. And uh, you know, you look at this and you say, well, okay, this is a hundred meter cable. Uh, it's going to be able to, you know, to do things. Uh, uh, but um, the the issue on this one is the the if you look at the the pricing of what this is for 100 meters, um, there are there are others there are active solutions that will do similar things um, for even less. And so um, from a from a I like it. It's a it's a cool technology that and the way that it works. And I think that even in your testing and if you're into quality assurance on it, I think you're going to be fine um, once you do get to the price of, of what it is, um, that's where uh, maybe the, the issues will come into play. Paul, I ask you with trepidation. Uh, <laughs> what are your thoughts it, are on this? It, it absolutely, I'm sure, works. Um, they're, they're bundling up uh, multiple fiber in there. They're essentially, instead of running it, running the, uh, the signals over copper, they'll be running them over fiber, which means they've got to have a transmitter and receiver in each end. Even at 480, 4K, 60, 48-bit, um, um, each of those fiber links will only be running at about 6 gigabits, which is easily doable. And um, uh, the issues, as he said, are going to be cost. And there are companies that, uh, that have these links. Um, I know that uh, I... I was playing with one ones from Optibase at um, at uh, ISE, where they were running um, 4K P60 deep color across uh, four fibers with all the feedback and everything. Um, so it's good. Your your real issues are, um, you know, at 100 meters, can I pull it? You know, uh, that's people don't like to pull pre-terminated cables, so, so is this going to be something that I'm going to be able to pull through a wall with fiber in it? Presumably they've got some sort of jacketing on it that's going to make it reasonably indestructible. Um, because it's fixed fiber into it, as opposed to connectors, um, there's pull issues, and then there's also a, it breaks, you throw it away, and buy another probably several hundred dollar cable. Um, but, but, a lot of it depends on what you need to do. If I need to get, um, if I need to get one TV signal out to my barn, um, and I'm already digging a trench to to put power out there because that's where my workshop and game room is going to be, you know, that might be it might be a viable way to just do it. And uh, it, you know, if I can use my uh, my remote on the TV set to change my satellite receiver and, and mirror my barn, you know, it, it, 
there's a lot of places that if you only need one run, that it's it's worth it for the convenience because because you could spend a lot of money figuring out another way to uh, to get a signal that far. Right, and your pool house example, I probably would want to run yeah. a fiber anyway. Or too many years of doing tech support with the lightning hitting the copper. Well, and... Yeah, well, and especially since I'd probably want to just throw it in the same conduit as the power just to avoid having to have a second conduit, wait till the inspector's gone, then pull the pull the uh, fiber through the same conduit as the electrical. <laughs> Not that we would ever do, no. Not that we would ever do We're that. Talking about, this is sort of a fantastical idea. Yeah, yes, okay. yes. Well, you know, moving on, as I said at the beginning, it is the first Friday of the month, and of course we have the publisher's perspectives. We bring on uh, magazines to tell us what their readers and their demographic are talking about in the AV and integration world. And with that, Andrew Medeiros from Tech Home Builder has a few of the articles that her demographic, which are the builders and technology people, are doing. Andrea, tell us what's going on with you. Sure. My articles that I brought today kind of run the gamut. Um, first, we sent one of our writers to Boston, I believe it was last week, for an IoT security conference. Um, I thought this was interesting because we just talked about a, a similar thing at the CE Pro Summit. Um, we had a panel on that. And we're kind of talking about cybersecurity when it comes to the smart home. And what I found interesting on this so far is it seems like everyone can agree that it's an issue and that we need to make our connections more secure, but it seems like there's no concrete solution at this point. So that's what I've kind of seen through both of those um, events that we've been to. Um, secondly, I kind of talked about this already today, um, this article titled California Home Builders Set the Standard for Standard. Um, we talk about this is a production builder. Um, well, actually, this is a luxury builder, but we've seen this in production, too. I'm working on an article on that right now. But builders talking about why not put the technology out there as standard. Um, we're talking home automation, security, even solar, uh, presenting that to the homeowner as standard or to the home buyer as standard. Also, USB outlets are a big deal right now. They're talking about including tech in the initial price because it gives the home buyer less of a headache. And that's kind of a way to get it into the home. Of course, there are so many builders who are not doing that. A lot of them are putting the technology into the home as add-ons, or maybe they're just pre-wiring, or they're putting a wireless, a strong wireless network in the home, and then the home buyer has the option to add on. Um, another story I brought today is building a green community makes the green in Washington. I thought this was kind of neat because we've seen kind of a lot of especially luxury homes going beyond home, home automation. These home buyers want more green technologies in their home. But what I found really interesting in this, this is a community, it's on the Washington, it's on Washington's coast, but they sold out of these homes in six months. There were 43 of these, home, 43 of these homes, they sold out of them really quickly. People wanted to be in them to the point that they're building even more of them. So it kind of showcases the demand for green technology right now. Um, another article I brought is AARP, of all people concerned with cybersecurity in the smart home. I thought this was interesting, not just because of the cybersecurity element, but because AARP is talking about home technology. That's kind of sending the message to me that it's a wider scope of an audience kind of interested in the smart home right now of AARP is writing about concerns in the smart home. I just thought that offered a perspective on how wide the smart home market is getting today. And then, of course, we wrote about this week Panasonic to challenge Tesla's home battery. We wrote about this somehow for some selfish reasons. Every time we write about Tesla, everybody reads the story. But um, it also is talking about home batteries and the interest in them right now, which goes hand-in-hand hand with how popular green technology is. Um, I just got back from a video shoot yesterday in the Hamptons, a home unbelievably green, um, just the technology in this home. So just be looking for that. We're going to be doing a video piece on that uh, coming up in the future. Very cool. Uh, Paul, Andrea touched on a few things here with the IoT and security, mm -hmm. and we've touched on it throughout the, uh, the show. Uh, you, by chance, have published a paper uh, with the friends. Where is it? Here it is. Sorry. With our friends at AV Technology, both uh, what security and networked AV, and I believe the other one is, there it is, Planning Video Streaming, What You Really Need to Know. Really two great articles. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the security one especially. This seems to be something okay. that we need to know, sort of like the first years of uh, Internet. And AV. Yeah. Um, 
the this workbook series, and these are the the first that we're doing, is part of my um, nefarious plan to build a smarter customer so I can build smarter products. <laughs> but um, as we as we deal with um, customers, specifically large enterprises, which is what I'm focused on, um, there's a there's a great deal need for them to um, have anything that touches their network have the level of security that um, that their devices that that protects their network. And um, I get a lot of escalations where after the fact, after the install, even at, com at commissioning or even after commissioning, suddenly um, a security person gets involved and says, hey, you can't have this on the network or hey, we can't do this. And um, I realized that none of these security conversations were happening. So, so the whole idea of the security workbook is to bring the AV practitioner, um, and it doesn't matter whether they're the customer representative, the consultant, or the integrator, um, and understand the security analysis process and, and give them some tools uh, that they can go through and have the conversation and bring the right people together so that prior to either the tender or at least prior to the design sign-off, all the, all the security acceptance criteria has been agreed upon and that they're not going to run into these end-stage problems, which can be very costly. You could end up disallowing things, having to change features, having to potentially change equipment, and um, at the very least, you've put yourself in schedule risk because, because I know, George, your AV projects uh, are usually completed two or three weeks before the customer wants to use the building, but, you know, I've been there at 2 o'clock in the morning on the day that they're uh, planning on cutting, cutting the ribbon and uh, converging projectors and, and doing fit-in. So, so these things can put incredible schedule risk on. So, so in these series um, for streaming and it's for security and the similar one for the streaming needs analysis, we really just walk through the process and considerations that have to be um, made to, to make the correct decisions in the design standpoint. And, and quite frankly, especially in the streaming, there are conclusions that you can draw running through this that, that, that take you away from our products. Um, but what I like to say is that um, I don't get commissioned, but I do get angry phone calls. So if somebody buys our product for something that it shouldn't be done, ultimately I may end up having to deal with that angry customer, whereas if they bought something else, the sales guy wouldn't have gotten the commission, but I would have gotten yelled at. Uh, very cool stuff, very interesting. And by the way, uh, I work in the live staging world now, so our stuff is built maybe two or three days beforehand, and then we're up for 36, 48 hours. So oh, okay. I'm with you. But uh, yeah, back in the day, I did some of those education ones where they were done long before. Um, but we also missed an article that was going to talk about how you know lack of sleep really does hurt you, but we'll get to that one another time. Uh, well, just like they say on Car Talk, you've wasted another good fine hour, but we really enjoyed having you guys along with us. Uh, I want to thank our panelists for joining us today. They are, of course, Andrea Medeiros, she is from Tech Home Builder. Andrea, where else can they find out about you and the stories you guys are covering? Pretty much ever, everywhere. You can go to techhomebuilder.com. You can always email me um, at my email address, which is amedeiros at ae-ventures.com. You can find me through my name on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. You can also look up Tech Home Builder on all of those sites. We are on all the social media. We're pretty easy to find. Cool. And, of course, Michael Braithwaite. How are you, sir? Thank you for joining us. Where else can I find out more about you and ClearOne? Uh, you can certainly go to www.clearone.com. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn and all the various uh, social media as well, but uh, clearone.com is probably the best place to find me. Very cool. And, of course, Paul Zeely from Harmon. Where else can I find about you, about Harmon, and uh, remind them where oh. they can find these two white papers? Um, these white papers, I, I hope you'll uh, put the links on AV Nation. Mm -hmm. um, 
there there are some kind of hidden links that are going out. I will make sure that they they get published in various places. Um, I'm sure they're linked from AV Technology, and and I'm sure they're linked somewhere on the AMX website. But I just got the email as to where they were permalinked. Um, there's AMX.com, um, Harman.com. Um, I'm now uh, branched across more brands than just AMX, so uh, I have some purview now in um, the the BSS and Crown and JBL and a little bit of Martin and and AKG and some of those other things. Um, so uh, Harman has, as I think you talked about last week, changed their scope to from being brand focused to being customer focused and um, and are realigning along those lines. Um, I haven't seen a lot of changes in the seven hours I've been in the office with the uh, with the, the new structure, but uh, um, it's all focused towards making it uh, streamlined to be able to to move to the markets um, efficiently. So, so hopefully it's going to help the customers um, as much as it helps us. But amx.com, harman.com, if you need to find me, talk to your um, proper representatives and um, they can get you to me and um, hopefully answer your questions before you have to talk to me because if, if, if you're in the position of having to talk to me, you've, you're already in trouble. <laughs> well, that makes me wonder how much trouble I'm in right now. Uh, guys, I want to thank everyone for watching. This is a production of AV Nation. It is a network made for and by working AV professionals and integrators. We have this show, AV Week, and many, many more, covering everything from Pico Projection to the IoT Revolution, a show with Dave Daniel Code Connected, premieres next week, so look for that. Uh, we have shows on Edutech and many, many more. That's avnationtv.com, avnationtv.com. Please stay there and go. Uh, we are sponsored by a number of unwriters, underwriters who make it possible for us to put these shows on. There they are, fine people one and all. Please stop by them. Say hello on Twitter to them and say thanks for sponsoring Aviation. I'm sure they're glad to hear it. This has been AV Week, and we look forward to talking with you again very soon. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation.